Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EBFL in Switzerland, and will be a host today. Today, we'll be talking to Lucy Ward about the new book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus. Living within living memory, smallpox was a dreaded disease. Over human history, it has killed untold millions. Back in the 18th century, as epidemics swept Europe, the first rumors emerged of an effective treatment, a mysterious method called inoculation. Lucy Ward expertly unveils their extraordinary story of enlightenment ideals, female leadership, and the fight to promote science over superstition. Well, Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I would like to ask, how are you? How was your week? And has anything notable happened during this time? Not so much in this particular week. I'm, um, well, unless you count going to visit my publisher to actually go and sign some copies of my book, which will be distributed to bookshops. So that was a real pleasure because it gives you a sense of a connection between yourself as the author and the reader of the book. Um, You spend a lot of time writing a book almost not able to envisage it as a real thing. Um, You know, it's just you and your computer and your, uh, you know, your Word document. And so to see it as a book and to imagine it in someone else's hands is really lovely. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm British, uh, English. I was born in the northeast of England, just near Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, But I grew up in Manchester, just outside Manchester, and went to school there. And then I went to university um, at Balliol College at the University of Oxford. And I studied uh, early and middle English, um, including Anglo-Saxon and Middle English and some Anglo-Saxon archaeology. And then after that, I um, spent a year living in Prague. And just after the um, Berlin Wall had come down, it's an incredibly interesting experience. And then I became a journalist. I worked on a um, local paper in, in the UK and trained there. And then I moved on to national papers and I worked at the uh, Times Education Supplement, the Independent Newspaper and The Guardian. And there I was a political correspondent during the time that Tony Blair was Prime Minister uh, in the UK. And um, I spent quite a lot of time there. And then I spent a couple of years, 2010 to 12, actually living in Moscow not for my own work, but for my partners and my children, went to a Russian school there. Uh, And then I came back to England and I've been doing some communications work at Cambridge University, which is near where I currently live in Essex, in um, South, well, in East England, just sort of to the north of London. And were you always interested in history? I, yeah, I studied history at school um, and I almost studied it at university I guess I did a kind of compromise because I as I mentioned I studied sort of Anglo-Saxon history alongside language and I I think that suited me because in a way I loved the interaction between the two Um, 
I had a particularly good history teacher at school, several actually, but one who was very good at kind of acting out history. And she would, um, she, in fact, I very strongly remember her being Catherine the Great and telling us, I'm Catherine the Great and you're all the peasants. And we would sit there and um, always be the peasants in every situation. (laughs) Um, And then, um, so she, yeah, she gave me a passion and actually also an probably from that and also from the political context in the 1980s when I was a teenager I got a real interest in Russia and I uh, traveled there in 1987 when I was 17 with a friend which was quite unusual really at the time I'm not quite sure why my parents gave us permission to do it but we went on an in-tourist trip to Moscow and to Leningrad um, and I found that absolutely fascinating um, and that probably really underlined an interest in Russia, um, which I've maintained. Uh, and I've been, I've traveled across Russia on the Trans-Siberian. I've obviously visited a lot. Uh, and as I say, I lived there for a couple of years too. And how did you get into journalism? Um, if I'm honest, so my father's a journalist. And so for when I was very small, I used to watch him um, typing on uh well, he used to take me into his office and I'd watch him typing on actual old style typewriters and then eventually on kind of early computers. This is all making me sound absolutely ancient. And I used to actually watch him. Um, he was at the Manchester Guardian and the um, printing presses were downstairs from the newsroom. And I would go downstairs and watch the presses go into into action um, when the paper was being printed and you could smell the the oil and the ink and I found the kind of physical creation of the newspaper really fascinating too and obviously also the the gathering of news and um and of talking to people of stories um and so I always really wanted to do that um I hope it wasn't just my dad I think it suited me uh and um so I when I left university I as I say I spent a year abroad I worked for Radio Prague um in what was then Czechoslovakia and that was a fascinating time it was 1990-91 and I made kind of small and probably not very good documentaries with an American friend there uh, and then I came back and uh, worked for a little while at BBC local radio and then I just applied to lots of local journalism jobs I really wanted to work in local newspapers because I still think it's the best training that you can have it rarely happens now um, but I, you know, I had formal training. I did. Uh, I learned shorthand. I learned law, government. Um, I practiced writing stories, and and then I, yeah, I learned um, journalism on the job as well within the newspaper. And that's great way of training because if you get it wrong, people come around and come into reception in your office and ask to see you, and they tell you you got it wrong. So you try to be as accurate as you can to avoid that happening. You've had such a wealth of experiences uh, in your career. So do you have any other tips to our younger listeners or somebody who will be interested in the, perhaps uh, having a career in journalism? I think journalism has the entry, the ways of entering journalism and the whole notion of what journalism is really have changed really dramatically since I went into it. I mean, I, I was probably some of one of the last people to go in in that very traditional way of kind of a formal training and uh, making my way from um, local level up to national newspapers. Uh, and, you know, local papers really have been decimated in um, certainly in this country and in uh, the US, I think, as well. 
it's much harder to get any kind of, you know, paid for training, almost apprenticeship as I had. Um, and obviously, I mean, the huge, huge, huge changes that, you know, we're not just talking about physical papers anymore. It's obviously now uh, most people are getting their news online. I mean, it kind of means there are more outlets and there are plenty of places to write, but actually being paid and trained is really quite difficult. Um, I think the, the key thing is always been with journalism is that you have to do it. You have to actually practice it. You have to um sort of demonstrate what you can do you really do have to be interested in people and listening to people and I think I, I suppose that's what I think journalism is it's not about commentary your own views I mean it could be later but I think your first task as a journalist is to have some understanding of how people live and to get used to listening to people and sort of reporting what they say um, and contextualizing that but it's not about your own view I think that's different um so I think an interest in other people's lives is the most fundamental thing that you need really and an immense determination you know it's not easy to do and it's the people that love it most and persist most not necessarily even like the most brilliant extraordinary writers but the people that just keep on plugging away that succeed in journalism I think oh yeah love it <laughs> So your latest yeah. book is the, the Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied the Deadly Virus. So this book is on the history of science. And how did you get interested in that? Well, this is, yeah, this is quite an unusual way. It's quite a kind of domestic, um, ordinary way with an awful lot of luck that I got interested in this. As I say, I was already interested in Russia. I'd studied a bit of Russian history um, and I'd obviously uh, lived in Russia, as I say. Um, when I moved back from Russia, I have three children and they all had to go into new schools. Obviously, we were moving country. And my son, who was about six, started at a new school in our small town. And um, on the first day he went there, um, I met another mother in the playground and I introduced myself and I said, we've just moved back from Russia. That's why he's starting school. And she said, oh, my family has... A Russian connection and I thought she'd say obviously I thought she'd say well we're you know my relatives are Russian or you know I thought it would be that literal and I asked her what it was and she said well my great 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 lots of times grandfather inoculated Catherine the Great against smallpox and I went what <laughs> and I kind of just pinned her against the wall and said you have to tell me you have to tell me more about this what on earth you know this is extraordinary and she told me about it. And our kids were just kind of kicking a ball around in the playground. And we just kind of ignored them while I kept making her tell me more about this. And then I went home and I went on the internet and just kind of looked this up straight away. I just found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I think everything about it really, I, but fundamentally just the notion that this was a, a man from a very small kind of country town in um, the south of England, who had made his way in 1768, um, it's around 1700 miles to St. Petersburg to go and treat the Empress of Russia. I, I didn't really know fully about inoculation and why it was different from vaccination. So I kind of looked that up. And I just, I'd never heard of it, even though I had heard Obviously, I knew quite a lot about Catherine from studying her, but also I knew that a lot of what people think they know about her is actually complete lies. Um, you know, there's there's an extraordinary amount of smearing of her 
history legacy really um because as a female ruler you know one of the ways that people both during her lifetime and afterwards could kind of um attack her was the way that people always attack women which is to kind of attack her sexual behavior her morals if you like and so you know even while she was ruling there were plenty of people denigrating her um through attacking her kind of the fact that she'd had um you know a number of lovers and you know they kind of extrapolated from that to um to kind of make up stories about her um that if you google did Catherine the great Google will fill in for you these kind of myths. And these myths have been hanging around for 250 odd years or so. And so I thought, right, okay, I know, I remember my teacher saying, well, do you know the story about Catherine the Great and the horse? And uh, and then saying, oh, but it's not true. And I thought people know stories about her that are complete nonsense, but they don't know this story, which is actually remarkable, that is true. And the most interesting thing that Catherine the Great did with her body was to have herself inoculated against smallpox, in my view. And so I kept my mind on that story. This, the, the, I came back from Russia 12 years ago, nearly. And I kind of never let go of this story. And I asked my friend that I'd met in the playground, would your family let me write about this? And at the time, her father... Um, was very interested in in his own family rightly because it's not even only this particular doctor Thomas Dimsdale who uh, is who inoculated Catherine there are many other Dimsdales who also played important roles in history and he was kind of writing about his own family history so of course he wanted to do that himself and then eventually more recently he he'd suggested to me that I kept asking and and he he perhaps would help me out and maybe let me use the family's papers and uh, potentially I could write a book and then very very sadly he died in um, 2019 just when we'd agreed to meet and the family after that the Dimsdale family his his children um, said to me that they would let me have access to the family papers and specifically to the papers relating to Thomas Dimsdale and I could write the book. And so I owe everything really to to Robert Dimsdale and to his children for letting me have this sort of extraordinary resource that the book is based on. Excellent. So this is a truly gripping story. So can we start <laughs> with you maybe telling us if we were to transport ourselves into those times, what would we see around us? Gosh, well, in a way, we have two settings for this this story, really. Um, so I think maybe we'll start with, you know, Thomas's world. Um, so Thomas Dimsdale was a a physician. Um, he the, the the book is set really in 1768 when he travelled to Russia the first time to inoculate Catherine, um, and I think uh, so. He he was living in. Um, a, a town called, or just in, in a village on the edge of a town called Hartford, which is um, some probably about 30, 40 miles north of London. Um, so this would have been a small market town, and he's living in a really small hamlet just outside it. Um, and he was a country physician, um, but he also had established quite a um, an affluent clientele, and his specialism was smallpox inoculation. Um, and I think we should perhaps go back a little bit in history because I think we need to explain a bit of context 
around that. Um, so yes, let me let me just take you back a little bit to um, Thomas Dimsdale's own childhood. Um, he was actually born in Essex, which is the county next to Hertford, um, in a little place called Thaden Garnon, a little about 17 miles to the northeast of London. And he was the sixth child of eight siblings. He was born in 1712 um, and his family were Quakers and they were, he came from a, a line of, of doctors and both those things, his Quaker identity and his identity as a, uh, his profession as a, as a doctor were incredibly important to him. Um, he, as I say, he was a Quaker um, and the Quakers were a um, kind of puritanical, if you like, Protestant sectorally, um, and they uh, really were very. Um, they had they were a kind of dissenting sect, and they had very strong views on, particularly on the idea that nothing should stand between the individual and God. They didn't believe in the priesthood. They meet. They thought that everybody had um, God kind of within them, the light within. Um, and their views had made them, their, particularly their refusal to swear oaths, um, had made them uh, sort of very problematic um, for, um, they were, um, they'd been persecuted really uh, in the previous century. They were seen as a, th a threat to the, the social order. And Thomas's grandfather um, had experienced this. He'd been imprisoned for his Quakerism. He was a convert to, to the sect. Um, and he's, he was also a doctor. Uh, and in fact, he'd actually gone across to America to kind of escape persecution here in, in Britain. Um, and he was a friend of, he knew William Penn, um, but he didn't actually go to Pennsylvania, the new Quaker colony. He, he went over to Burlington County in West Jersey. He took his family there and he spent some time there. Um, and then he actually made his way back, came back to Britain and he established a medical practice. Uh, and his two sons, uh, one of whom was Thomas's father, also became doctors. And Thomas's father set up uh, a medical practice in Thaden Garnon um, in Essex. And Thomas was born there and brought up very strictly as a, as a Quaker by his parents. And he also followed his father into, um, into healthcare. And he would have gone around the parish where his father was working and helped treat people, watched his, his father treat, treat people. And healthcare in Britain at that time, there was obviously no centralised healthcare system. Um, you had a, a parish-based healthcare system that was um, uh, run according to the Elizabethan poor law. So the parish was obliged to treat the poorest um, and provide healthcare and welfare of a sort uh, as much as it could. And um, so they would pay Thomas's father as a doctor um, to treat people. And one of the um, main illnesses that he would have been treating was smallpox um which was a hideous hideous disease at the time it was killing probably around one in five people who got it um it was a brutal infection uh it um if it didn't kill you it would uh it could cause huge um, problems to joints um it could just cause all kinds of damage and it was also it created um horrible scarring and um uh that, that doctors really had no way of treating smallpox at, at all all they could do or their approach was to basically to treat it as a fever which meant that they 
tried to keep patients warm. It's actually the worst thing that you could do for people, really. Um, but they understood um, smallpox, as they did all diseases, as a kind of imbalance of the humours. Um, and so they would um, try to bring the humours back into balance. Um, with smallpox, they would use the techniques they had, so purging, um, maybe making people vomit, uh, possibly bloodletting. They wrapped people up and kept them warm. Some of their um, treatments, not necessarily Thomas's father, but traditional treatments might be things that were really far more sort of superstitious, like believing the colour red would tackle the, the disease and wrapping people up in red, red blankets. Um, they, you know, essentially they didn't really know the best thing to do. They saw it uh, as, a dis- as a distinct disease, but they kind of treated every patient individually according to their symptoms um, and really there was little that could actually be done you either kind of survived it or you didn't and the the, the most important thing they could do uh, doctors could do was to isolate patients and they certainly understood that you needed to isolate people and keep them away from other people so to some degree or they didn't understand the mechanism of contagion they did know that isolation was and kind of quarantine was important so they would provide kind of um, places to to keep pe- people separate um, from the rest of a village population, but they didn't have a way of of really dealing with this. And um, it, you know, it was an, a, a terrible killer disease. And actually, the the nature of smallpox was that the the, the virus was um, becoming more and more virulent. And the 18th century was absolutely the century of smallpox. You know, there were epidemics that would just sweep across Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say, one in five people would, would roughly one in five people would die if you got it. And the majority of, of deaths came among infants and parents were told, you um, you know, they shouldn't count their children until they'd had smallpox because it was so likely that they would die of it if they caught it. And, and it was so likely that people would get smallpox uh, in their lifetime um, that they actually believed that it was an innate disease, that it was a kind of innate seed and that the the spots of smallpox, the pustules that broke out over your body were a kind of manifestation of this innate poison kind of escaping the body. So um, that was Thomas's father treating smallpox among, of course, all the other diseases uh, in the parish. Thomas is going around with him. And then in 1730, um, Thomas's father died and Thomas was sent off uh, to, at age 18, to go and train at a hospital in London. So that was something his own father hadn't done. Thomas, as a Quaker, couldn't go to university, couldn't go, rather he couldn't go to Oxford and Cambridge or Cambridge because he wouldn't swear allegiance to, uh, to the monarch um, as a Quaker. Um, so no Quakers went to those universities to the great loss of Oxford and Cambridge, I may add. Um, but he did go and train at hospital in London. And there he he watched really quite expert um, physicians and surgeons. And he, he learned to be a surgeon by training there. Um, and then uh, he set up in business as a surgeon, if you like, in, um, in, in Hartford, uh, where his family had other relatives. Uh, in about 1734, and he also um, made connections there with the Quaker uh, population in his um, in in Hartford, and was kind of recommended to them as a as a as a good Quaker by uh, the the Quakers in his um, near his previous address. So yes, he sets up as a doctor, um, and he would have been treating 
people again with smallpox, but with all kinds of, uh, of conditions and diseases in, in the town of Hartford. So then what is inoculation and how did this come about? So inoculation is the use of um, smallpox itself, the, um, the infected matter from um, the pustule of someone with smallpox. Uh, so this giving people a small dose of that infected matter in order to give them a sort of mild controlled dose of smallpox, which would then confer lifelong immunity on them. So you can call it a kind of fighting fire with fire. So Thomas would have come across inoculation um, probably in around the um, 1740s, once he'd been operating as a doctor for a while, possibly a little before that. Now, inoculation had come to Britain earlier than that. Inoculation itself had actually been in use elsewhere outside of Europe um, for um, certainly decades and possibly much longer as a, as a kind of folk practice. And it came to Britain from Turkey in the um, early part of the 18th century. And it first was heard of in Britain through um, two reports that came to the Royal Society, the scientific society in Britain, that were sent from doctors working in Turkey. And they reported that in Turkey um, that uh, old women really um, would uh, take um, infected matter pus from the pustules of somebody with smallpox. They would take a, a little bit of this infected material and then using a needle, they would just um, pierce the skin of, of a healthy patient and just add the tiniest drop of this infected material. And that healthy patient would then get a mild controllable case of smallpox, recover and be immune. And the Royal Society published these two papers in its journal, the um, uh, Philosophical Transactions. And its members kind of looked at that, but they never actually tested out this method, um, possibly because it had come from foreign lands. It was women that were involved. Um, they clearly didn't kind of respect this um, idea sufficiently, or maybe it had intrigued them, but there's no evidence that they actually tried it out. So then in steps this, an extraordinary woman called Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was a British aristocrat, um, and her husband, uh, Edward Wortley Montague, became ambassador to Turkey. And she travelled with him. She went with him. And in about 1717, she arrived um, in Constantinople. And very quickly, she witnessed um, a sort of smallpox party where children were brought together and uh, again these old women would use what she describes as a blunt needle to um, inoculate the children and the children were specifically you know given this treatment so that they would then be immune to smallpox now lady mary Wortley montague had had smallpox herself had had a very bad case she was scarred from it she'd lost her eyelashes she had these kind of staring eyes um, as a result apparently although she'd, she'd been incredibly beautiful and so she had this scarring, but even more importantly, she'd lost her own brother to smallpox previously. So she was incredibly interested in the idea that you could protect people against it. She wrote home to a friend saying, I've seen this happen. It's incredible. I'm going to bring it back to England. She had her own son inoculated in Turkey. And then when the family came back to Britain, she had her own daughter inoculated um, in, in London and had 
um, scientists in London observe um, the operation and also, you know, kind of testify that her daughter was well afterwards. And this caused an absolute huge stir. Uh, and she was, um, she sort of promoted, she was a kind of influencer. She she went around London promoting the fact that, you know, this method um, gave her daughter immunity and telling other people to do it. And the kind of elite of London, because she was such a, a kind of fashionable, uh, charismatic figure, um, the uh, fellow kind of aristocrats, if you like, did follow her example and did have their children inoculated. Um, so she kind of started this trend. Uh, and the, the next thing that happened, her influence was particularly significant because she then managed to persuade um, Caroline of Ansbach, who was the Princess of Wales and the, the wife of the future George II, to have two of her own children, two princesses, inoculated. Now, Caroline didn't kind of rush to do this straight away. She wanted to have the procedure tested out. And so she did something that we now think is incredibly unethical. She had um, she uh, commissioned a trial called the Royal Experiment um, on prisoners at Newgate Prison in London. And she had six people um, inoculated under the observation of doctors, six of the prisoners. And they were promised that if they went through with this, they could have their freedom. Um, and they were all inoculated in um 1721 um, and they all recovered and then um, the doctors made one of them go and spend time with a family where there was smallpox and actually sleep in the same bed as a child with smallpox to check that they really had got immunity to it and sure enough um, this particular woman did not contract smallpox and then um, so the, this experiment seemed to show inoculation worked and then um, Caroline of Ansbach still was worried that, that no experiments had been carried out on children so she commissioned a second kind of trial if you like with um, some orphans in uh, uh, in the parish of, of Westminster uh, and the group of these children were inoculated again they all recovered they were all fine and in fact the public was given the opportunity to go and view these children and see how healthy they were um, and she then so this uh, Caroline of Ansbach then had her own two daughters inoculated and that you know gave them the royal seal of approval to this method um, which helped promote it among the uh, sort of aristocracy in, in Britain and kind of set it on its way um, and after that um, th there's there's a lot to say about this and you could find more in my book The Empress and the English Doctor but essentially doctors and scientists in Britain really uniquely became very convinced that this was um, a, an extremely effective method. The Royal Society kind of crowdfunded evidence of doctors around the country, um, sorry crowdsourced evidence of doctors around the country who were inoculating <clears throat> and who were um, and, and kind of they compared the likelihood, the mortality rates for natural smallpox, just the ordinary disease, and the mortality rates of inoculated smallpox. And lo and behold, you know, one in five people roughly died from natural smallpox, whereas inoculated smallpox, around one in 50 were dying. So they were doing something that was really quite remarkable at the time and very new, which was to use data to evaluate a medical procedure. And it was clear, which was, you know, if you wanted the better chance of survival, inoculation was the safer choice. Although, of course, it meant that you had to choose to, if you like, take an upfront small risk in order to avoid a larger, more distant risk. And of course, people 
human beings find that incredibly difficult and we know that just as much now with a covid vaccination you know people are very wary of 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 doing this or they can be and so there were huge debates there were arguments in britain there were people saying what on earth are we doing you know if a man has toothache he wouldn't recommend his friend should have all his teeth taken out just in case he gets toothache and they were coming out with arguments like this and or they were saying um also they were very worried that you know this was getting in the way of of god's will and that it was up to god to use disease to kind of punish sin so britain kind of had these arguments and there were some huge debates and in fact i found the term anti-inoculator so you know the equivalent of anti-vax and that was in that was certainly the first use of that term i could find was in 1722 so exactly 300 years ago we've been you know we've been having these rows for three centuries um and uh but britain kind of i think we're quite pragmatic um and the science at that time they didn't use the word science but natural philosophy was very much focusing on the notion of kind of empiricism that you used observation you would uh, you were pragmatic. If something worked, you didn't kind of just lose yourself in, inherit, in inherited dogma and theory. It was all about, you know, seeing what worked. And the reality of inoculation was it worked. And so Britain really kind of doctors in Britain took, you know, became pretty convinced about this really quite early. Um, and, you know, by the late 1720s, they were using it um, not across the country by any means, but it was happening in Britain. Uh, it dipped a bit, but then that was because smallpox, uh, smallpox epidemics kind of um, ebbed and flowed, and there was uh, a real kind of reinterest in inoculation in the 1740s because that's when smallpox came kind of roaring back with another terrible epidemic, and that sense of threat is what makes people turn to inoculation, just as it does with vaccination, I think. Um, and so at that point, inoculation becomes much more popular, or much better known in Britain again. And that's where Thomas Dimsdale would have come across it, uh, if not before, and started to practice as an inoculator. Um, and he continued doing that. The thing that's important to know is that the doctors in Britain didn't just adopt the Turkish method. They actually um, adapted it in ways that made it less safe. Instead of just doing this simple, tiny prick in the skin, they made big incisions and they sometimes they put in pieces of thread or lint that was soaked in smallpox pus and so they they you know opened patients to the possibility of infection they made the whole procedure far more dangerous ironically they were kind of they thought they were improving it but actually they weren't um but nevertheless it was still much safer than natural smallpox uh, and Thomas Stimsdale became a, um, a very experienced inoculator. He was very interested in it, and he was inoculating the poor locally, but also uh, wealthy people uh, in um, in London and in uh, in the area where where he lived. So that was kind of his medical specialism, if you like. So, what was the landscape of smallpox epidemics in Russia during that time? Were they also ravaged by them? Yeah, Russia was, you know, was no different from any other part of Europe. They were absolutely experiencing um, smallpox epidemics as well. Um, people in doctors in Russia did know about inoculation. You know, Russia was very aware of things that were happening further west in Europe. Um, 
but they were not using it on any kind of systematic scale. There were doctors, a few doctors that were using it in the very westernmost part of the empire in, in Livonia, um, but it really wasn't common in Russia. And yeah, I mean, it was as brutal um, there as it was anywhere else. Um, Russia was um, had a pretty strict system of uh, isolation and quarantine, and it sought to kind of tackle smallpox really by um, a very rigid insistence that people had to isolate, had to be quarantined. If they were suffering from smallpox, they couldn't travel, um, and that was policed very rigidly. And, um, you know, you could, in fact, if you tried to uh, leave an area with when you had smallpox, it was potentially punishable by death. Um, and yeah, I mean, smallpox killed. It's very, very difficult everywhere, really, to find reliable data because that just doesn't exist. But um, it's it, it killed people, of course, in their you know tens of thousands. Um, I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of people dying every year across Europe from from smallpox. It it really was, um, you know, the absolute the horrific disease of the, uh, the, the of the 18th century. It was sometimes known as the speckled monster. Um, and it kind of ebbed and flowed, you know, in epidemics, obviously they would, an epidemic would sweep through an area and and then kill enough people that others would then survive. So you then have a kind of phase where people had immunity and then more people would, more babies would be born. And then that, of course, you know, they would be vulnerable again. Um, so you'd have these kind of epidemic cycles and the, um, uh, the kind of indigenous populations in Siberia and Russian Far East were particularly vulnerable to to the disease and uh, and would die in in great numbers from it. Yeah. So how did this really pr- um, prominent ruler Catherine the Great, who was the empress basically mm-hmm. of the whole empire, come across the work of Thomas Dimsdale? Well, um, so Catherine the Great is just a little bit of background. She she was a German princess from, um, she'd grown up in a place called Stettin, which is now in modern Poland on the, the Baltic coast. Her father was a kind of minor German prince. Her mother had slightly grander um, relatives. And through her mother, really, she ended up coming to the attention of um, the Empress Elizabeth of Russia, who was looking for a wife for her heir, who was her own nephew. Um, and she uh, she chose um, Catherine, who was um, actually known as Sophie when she was a princess. Um, and, uh, and so um, Catherine came to Russia, or Sophie, Princess Sophie came to Russia, aged 14, um, betrothed to... Um, uh, her young husband um, Peter, the heir to the Russian throne, um, and they uh, married at at fifteen. Um, and uh, it was a very difficult, complicated uh, marriage relationship. Peter was very unstable. He didn't really show Catherine any love. Um, he was uh, kind of very childish in many ways. He would play with toy soldiers. He was very violent. Often he took other lovers. Um, Catherine was left very much to uh, sort of her own devices um, and she spent her time reading political philosophy (laughs) a lot of the time, educating herself. She also rode horses, often dressed in man's attire. She would ride astride. She didn't want to ride side saddle. Um, She found great thrill in kind of um, the speed and power of horse riding. Um, So she was 
she was kind of um, developing her own ideas and uh, while her husband was off doing whatever he was doing, um, eventually Elizabeth died in 1762 um, and Peter took the throne. Uh, but he had he was on the throne for a very short time, barely six months, um, before a coup in which Catherine, supported by um, uh, the, the army, essentially um, took power. And just six days after that, um, Peter died. He was um, he was murdered by his guards. Um, no one knows whether Catherine knew about that, ordered it. It was certainly in her interests that this man who she um, certainly didn't love um, would disappear and she very rapidly had herself crowned and took over as Empress of Russia um, and she had their son Paul Pavel um, to bring up and she kind of very quickly set about trying to establish herself on the throne after this coup and establish her own legitimacy and the legitimacy of her son as her heir um, and she uh, did this partly by she after all her reading of political philosophy she um published a work of um herself called the nakaz or the instruction which was um her kind of in a sense set out her own political philosophy and she uh, uh also embarked on a program of um of reforms really so she wanted um kind of to uh, introduce legal reforms in Russia. She never necessarily got that far with, but she also wanted to introduce reforms, for example, to healthcare education. She was very keen on healthcare. Um, she recognised there were very, very few doctors in Russia. Even fewer of them were actually, you know, Russian um, indigenous doctors. They came in from abroad. She set up um, medical training in in Russia uh, to to create kind of homegrown doctors, if you like. And she was part of the reason that she wanted to um, uh, reform healthcare was she recognised that there was enormous child mortality in Russia and she was keen that the population uh, should increase because she recognised that part of the political power of a country uh, lay in its population and uh, she needed to try to encourage that. I mean, I think there were more benign reasons as well, but part of it was that kind of... Um, uh, almost economic reasons for increasing the population. Um, so she was borrowing ideas from Western Europe. Um, she and she was fundamentally wanted Russia to be a European state. Um, that was the first line of her uh, um, great instruction: Russia is a European state. Um, and she wanted Russians to look to Europe and to um, uh, and to to reform, to modernize. But she also wanted Western Europe to see Russia as not not backward, not not in the dark, but as again as a as a, a modern progressive European state and herself as an enlightened ruler. Now uh, she was progressing with this, uh, but then lo and behold, in um, 1768, um, smallpox, yet another epidemic of smallpox was um, uh, kind of flooding across. Uh, so it came to St Petersburg, to the capital. Um, she was terrified for herself, for her own life and for her sons. And she moved out of St. Petersburg and um, stayed for some, some months in the uh, in her palaces outside of the city. And she didn't like that. She didn't like being away from the centre. She probably could see that it was dangerous for her potentially uh, in terms of her absence from the sort of seat of power. But she also felt, I think, you know, she should be where she should be ruling in St. Petersburg. Um, and then... Um, 
her own advisor, uh, Nikita Panin, um, had a, a fiancé who died of smallpox. Um, and she could see that this disease really was a reality. And now she wanted to protect her son. And she knew about inoculation. Um, she'd heard of it. She'd even suggested it before and had been overruled. And she told, you know, she then decided she would have her own son inoculated. And um, Panin, her, her advisor, agreed. And so they knew that they had to look really to England or they decided to look to England as the kind of centre of excellence, centre of expertise for this technology. So she sent a message to her uh, her ambassador in London, Count Moussan Pushkin, and she said, find me the best inoculator in Britain and, and bring him. I'll bring him here. And so um, next thing that Thomas Stimsdale knows of this is that uh, a... Um, uh, a messenger on horseback arrives at his his surgery at his house in um, in Hartford and and says um, we want you to come and talk to the ambassador we have this uh, this sort of mission for you and Thomas is completely baffled by this but he he goes to this meeting and it's kind of brokered by a Quaker friend of his called John Fothergill, a doctor, um, uh, a very important Quaker physician in London, uh, a very well-connected. Um, and this ambassador says, we have this mission for you. You know, we would like you to come to Russia and introduce inoculation. And he doesn't really tell him it's to inoculate the empress, but he's given to understand that there is this kind of importance to this mission. Thomas has a think about it and he says, you know, it's 1700 miles. I'm 56 years old. Uh, I have a family, seven children. I have too many responsibilities. I have a kind of you know, big medical practice here. I just don't think I can do this. So he says no. And then um, and then he's called back and Catherine sends another messenger incredibly fast, uh, arrives in 16 days from, days from St. Petersburg and, and says, look, you know, this is a project to inoculate the Empress of Russia and her son. At which point he feels it's his duty, he says, uh, to to do this, and he um, so he kind of quite reluctantly really agrees. And in just a few weeks, he gets ready, and he's told he can bring someone. He brings his son, who's a medical trainee, a trainee doctor, who's at Edinburgh University. He brings him with him, and they they pack up. And within a few weeks, the end of July, they're in a carriage, a fast carriage, um, and they're heading. Uh, across the channel to Amsterdam and from there they make their way via Berlin east overland over this quite difficult journey uh, and in a month they arrive in St. Petersburg. That's completely incredible the whole story. <laughs> so <laughs> it just yeah it's incredible. Uh, it, I wonder yeah. how he felt you know during I that know, time. I, I think he I think he felt Actually, well, I know how he felt to some degree because he wrote about it. So he wrote, he he wrote a treatise much later where he recounted his experience, and he did that because Catherine at the time made him write it down, and she published it in Russian first, and then he came, eventually he published it in English. So we know what he did. He also wrote letters, private letters, to a friend called Henry Nichols in London, and I have those letters from the Dimsdale family, the wonderful Dimsdale family. So I also know what he wrote privately. And essentially, he was feeling, I mean, something not quite panic, but enormous anxiety. I mean, he's a controlled man, a very kind of, um, not a flashy man, a serious man, not someone given to kind of, um, you know, kind of pyrotechnical behavior, very steady, very scientific. You know, he, he loved observation. He wrote very carefully. You know, the reason Thomas was chosen, the reason he was seen as the most important um inoculator was he'd written a treatise about it and he'd explained the method by this time the method in England had been 
revised and then simplified really back to more or less the method used in Turkey, just the very smallest kind of incision, no threads or any of this, and also keeping the patient very cool instead of wrapping them up and keeping them warm. And that was saving a lot more lives. And by this time, it's really important, this um, inoculation was really very, very safe. And people get this wrong. They think that it was always, you know, just about one in 50 people died. Absolutely not. Doctors were inoculating all the time with almost no fatalities. If you did it correctly, it was very safe. The biggest kind of risk of it was that patients were infectious for a while while they had it so you had to keep them in isolation and that was its big drawback but in terms of you know would you survive yeah you would um and anyway so thomas arrives in st petersburg and yeah he, he talks about seeing these kind of glittering roofs and uh, and other other travelers to russia talk about that too you know seeing um these spires and and these these roofs covered in tin and shining in the sunlight and he's put up in this incredibly grand apartment just near the Winter Palace on a street called Millionaya. So it was the kind of millionaire's row. Uh, he's given this fancy apartment and uh, he and his son are given, you know, servants, English food. And then he is very quickly introduced um, to, first of all, to Panin, Catherine's advisor, and then to Catherine herself. And Panin says to him, look, you've been entrusted with this incredibly important task. These are two of the most important personages in the world. This is Catherine and her son, Paul, and your li their lives are in your hands. Imagine, you know, and so this poor doctor, he's just got out of a carriage after a month on the road, and he's being told that. And He's in this strange land. He doesn't understand anything. They speak French and his French is absolutely shocking. And so he he can't really communicate very well. He's embarrassed at his French, you know, classic English person, rubbish at languages, totally embarrassed about it. Um, and he uh, he then is introduced finally to Catherine. And she's 39, he's 56. And these people, these two people just look at each other and they hit it off absolutely amazingly. They are both... They're both frankly interested in inoculation. They're interested in science. They're both interested in reason. They like to uh, behave very rationally. They they kind of um, just enjoy thinking about facts. And they 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 talk about inoculation together. And Thomas is absolutely overwhelmed by how much she knows. She's really done her homework. She knows everything about inoculation. And he just can't get over this woman, how how kind of charming she is and how in clever and so informed. And they become just kind of friends. And it is friends. It's not any other kind of relationship. And she welcomes him into the palace. He dines there frequently. He dines with her son. He talks about having these meals with this extraordinary food. Um, he describes having pineapple, uh, which he'd never had before, you know, watermelon, which he'd certainly never had. And at first he doesn't like it. And then he kind of gets used to it. And she just ushers him really into her private sphere. They became very close and she really trusted him as a doctor and as an advisor and as a man, I think. And I think she, you know, she's surrounded by people she can't necessarily trust, but she absolutely took to Thomas Dimsdale. Um, and anyway, he, he then says to her, right, I need to do, I need to have trials. I need to test this out. I can't just, you know, inoculate you straight away. There could be issues with, it could be a different kind of strain of virus. What about the weather? Um, so she she's kind of willing to be inoculated straight away, but she says, "Okay, you can you can have these trials." So he he inoculates some young soldiers, some conscripts, and these trials go quite badly, and these conscripts become quite unwell, and it's not really clear whether they may have had smallpox before, and he gets very anxious about that, and it also becomes actually surprisingly difficult to find um, 
people with smallpox from whom to inoculate because so many people who get it die in Russia. Um, and he's up against huge superstition that, that Russians are very afraid that anyone who donates their kind of um, infected matter will will die. That's their belief. Um, he goes into a peasant family's home and is and, and they very clearly feel that there's a child who's ill with smallpox and the parents are desperate that he shouldn't take the inoculum from this child. And he's very, very sensitive to that. And he tries to reassure them. He tells them he wouldn't do anything that would harm them. Um, he's also very concerned that the, this child is kept in an excessively warm, warm room. He desperately tries to get the parents to open the window and they don't want to. Anyway, all this happens. Um, he's set up also in a, a, um, an inoculation hospital that Catherine's established at a place called Wolf House, just on the outskirts of St. Petersburg. Um, and there, eventually, he manages to um, find some... He's done his tests. Catherine says, you know, get on with it, please. And, you know, I want to go ahead with this inoculation. She says, my life is my own. It's my decision. She says, I long for the happy day. And she gives him a time. She says, you have to come at nine o'clock at night on this particular date, the 12th of October, and come to this back entrance of the Winter Palace uh, and I'll be ready and waiting. And so he and his son climb in a carriage at night in the dark and they bring with them a, a child, a boy called Sasha Alexander, who they've inoculated with smallpox at just the right time so that his um, pustules are, are ready for, to inoculate from. And they wrap him up in a fur and they put him in the carriage and they they travel through the dark streets of St. Petersburg, cross the river, and they come to the back gates of the Winter Palace. And they're ushered up the secret back staircase, carrying this child who's asleep. And they bring him to Catherine, who's waiting in a room by herself. And they Thomas takes out um, his lancet, a little kind of medical case with a lancet with a mother of pearl handle. And he pierces the, the blister in this child's arm where he inoculated him. And he takes out some pus. And then in, he then makes a tiny in a, a tiny little um uh puncture in the in Catherine's arms um one in each arm and he puts a little bit of this infected matter inside and then she has smallpox he's infected the empress of russia with smallpox and all he can do now is wait and see how she recovers and of course, there's so much more depth and nuance uh, of, of the story in your book. And I was just wondering, does any of this resonate with any of the current day events? I think it does, yes. Uh, and unbelievably so, really. I think there is something about inoculation or vaccination, as it later became, um, which is just universal because it's about human nature, really. And it goes back to this point of, of risk and this that the fact that um, inoculation requires people to take risks uh, in order to kind of avert a greater risk that might not happen. And, you know, so you're dealing with fear of death. You're dealing with often people making decisions on behalf of their children. And so they're dealing with the greatest love they could have. You know, you're dealing with the balance between extreme rationality, you know, looking at data and saying this is definitely safer than that. And yet, um, you know, we don't really operate like that as people. We're incredibly bad at making those sorts of decisions. And I think we can see that, you know, those behaviors in lots of ways, but we still see it, you know, with vaccinations where a lot of people are very, you know, get concerned, are very skeptical still. Um, I think I found a lot of parallels in terms of kind of how you how you persuade people i mean one of the 
the quotes I found from Catherine, which I don't think anyone else has ever written about, was in a footnote to Thomas's um, a treatise that he wrote when he was back, where he talked about the inoculation of Catherine the Great. And he, he explained that while she was recovering and he was walking with her in the grounds of the palace where she recovered, which is just outside St. Petersburg, she was um, they, they met some um, peasants who lived nearby and she told him that she was paying them to be inoculated. Um, and she said, I'm an autocrat. I could get these people to do anything. Um, and, you know, I could make them do, you know, kind of obey my will. But I choose to use persuasion. I think that's more important. And and in fact, as I say, not just persuasion, she's actually bribing them. She was paying them a ruble. And she even told them that, told Thomas that they then they then had kind of got wise to this. So they were now saying, oh, we want more than a ruble. You need to double it. And, and, and so she's kind of telling a joke against herself. She knows that she's being almost, you know, that her goodwill in a sense is being slightly, you know, abused. But she still was, you know, she she believed in using persuasion and that was actually a more powerful mechanism to get people to do what she wanted. And of course, you know, that really relates to our current debates about compulsion and about the best way to get people to take a course that you believe is the right one and the safest one for them. That actually, you know, even someone who was, you know, an autocrat decided not to compel people. I thought that was very interesting, both in terms of, you know, obviously, literally in terms of how she treated inoculation, which she was passionate about, she absolutely believed in, but also in terms of her view of power. Um, so, yeah, I found a lot of parallels there. Um, and I think also, I, I didn't talk about it earlier, but, you know, when when smallpox came, affected communities in, in Britain, and it would have been the same elsewhere, you know, the, the economic impact was huge. People you know, markets would close, um, schools would close, people would be scared, they would not go into town, the kind of mechanisms of law and government would be affected, the courts would close, you know, I was writing this book at the time that, you know, literally in lockdown, I mean, I pitched the book before COVID, just before it, and then I got the contract literally as the UK went into lockdown. And so I had to write it, you know, without access to all the archives I would have loved to have, but I had Thomas's own papers, um, which was wonderful. Um, and yeah, so I found these parallels all the time. I mean, it was almost overwhelming. You know, I never, ever got a work, got my head out of this idea of, you know, a virus and of people's reaction to it and of how best to, to fight it and, and, you know, how you persuade people to take the, the step that will be the thing that saves us. Yeah. Um, and what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, The Empress and the English Doctor, surprised you the most? Um, I think, I think you know, I think the biggest thing for, for me is just that most people, if you talk to them about vaccination, they say, or even inoculation, they'll say, oh, yeah, Jenna, Edward Jenner. And they're absolutely right. Edward Jenner was the person who proved that cowpox um could provide immunity against smallpox. Massively important. A mild disease provides immunity against a, a, a brutal, lethal disease. And, and so that meant that, you know, you could inoculate people without fear of infecting other people. That's a huge breakthrough. And obviously, you know, that was absolutely transformative. Um, and it's just a, a scientific leap that is, is pretty much unparalleled. Um, but I think people have completely forgotten if they ever knew that before that, you know, for 80 years in, in Britain, um, you know, there was this 
inoculation, this different form, um, this kind of foundational technology on which vaccination was um, built. Uh, Jenner published his paper in 1798, right at the end of the century. Lady Mary Wortley Montague brought inoculation here in, you know, 1721. So that's pretty much eight decades of doctors using this foundational technology, um, discovering more and more about it, perfecting it, making it work, even coming to the conclusion, you know, before Jenner, that it was potentially possible to eradicate smallpox as a disease. I mean, there were there were doctors by the 1790s in Britain who had plans for, you know, everything from kind of, you know, isolation, quarantine, furlough, track and trace, uh, and essentially eradication. You know, they were so incredibly far-sighted they saw so much and they also really really understood a lot about contagion they recognized that you know it was that this disease was passed on from person to person um, by some kind of external thing they, they didn't have microscopes strong enough to you know to see the virus itself but they they kind of knew what was happening they didn't believe anymore in the this kind of innate seed inside us you know they knew so much they were so advanced and I just think people really don't realize that and I want that to be known. I think that's, you know, that how how much doctors were doing, how much they understood, and also how much they were debating risk and they were kind of thinking about that, all those things that we're, we're doing again, you know, 250 years later. And, of course, the other thing, you know, that I discovered was just, just to see how Catherine the Great approached this, this extraordinary kind of scientific mind, the farsightedness, the desire to extend inoculation across her empire, which the book talks about, um, which meant that when it, when vaccination came, Russia was able to adopt it very, very quickly, despite being such a huge country. Um, so, yeah, those are the things that I really, really struck me and that I hope the book can convey. And also the excellent example of female leadership, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the really extraordinary things about Catherine was the way that she used her own inoculation. So, you know... Of course, initially it, it's, it saves her son's life and her, or protects her son's life and, and protects her own. Okay, so there's a kind of immediate personal benefit. But she, you know, she was an absolute consummate politician and she recognized the potential of this, not just the medical scientific potential to protect, you know, her country health wise, but the potential for her own leadership. And so the moment she'd recovered, she essentially organized the most massive party, really, celebration. So she had everything from, you know, um, fireworks, gun salutes. She had um, a um, she, she announced a national annual holiday every single 21st of November. They would celebrate her inoculation to keep promoting mm. the technology, which is, you know, that's really striking. Um, she had a ballet um Uh, devised called prejudice defeated you know so she could position herself as this internally within Russia as the protector of her people this little mother of the Russians um, she she aligned herself almost with a kind of Christ-like figure protecting her her sheep um, you know so she could boost her own popularity uh, she could boost the procedure um, and then externally she could she could boost her leadership and her kind of status as an enlightened progressive leader so the minute she'd been you know she recovered she was writing straight away she was getting out there with her kind of personal propaganda she wrote to Voltaire who was a, a huge supporter of inoculation um, from I mean a very very kind of early adopter of believed in the technology most of France wasn't but he advocated and fought for it criticized his own country all the time 
And she wrote to him saying, I did it. I was hardly ill. I was just so incredibly, you know, I just kind of barely spent a day in bed. Not quite true. She really didn't feel great. But Thomas kind of nursed her throughout. Um, and, uh, and Voltaire wrote back to her and said, um, you have been inoculated as easily as a nun taking an enema. <laughs> like, well, thank you. Oh boy. <laughs> That's classic Voltaire, who's a very kind of, um, you know, this acerbic wit and, and willing to be very rude. Um, and then she wrote to Frederick the Great, who was very cross that she'd done this. And even though he sort of believed in inoculation, he didn't think she should have risked her life as a ruler. And she wrote kind of almost quite flirtatiously to him. Oh, well, I hope you'll forgive me, you know. But again, just getting the word out. Look what I've done. Look at my bravery. Look at my leadership. Look at my courage. You know, and she was right. It was she was the only leader to be inoculated in office. Uh, you know, other other rulers like Maria Theresa um, in Austria had their children inoculated, and she did that after many members of her family had died of smallpox. Um, but no one in office did that, and so she was able not only to, you know, as I say, see the medical benefits, of course, the immediate ones, but also the you know, the political benefits. And, and she made sure that people across Europe knew about this, and they did. And, you know, there were people writing poems about this in France and in Germany, and, you know, people knew about it in Britain. Um, and, you know, this is very early in her reign. She's still trying to establish herself as this very progressive, enlightened leader. I mean, all leaders changed. She had a long reign. Um, and, of course, she, uh, you know, she met more opposition, and she, um, she kind of uh, battened down as her reign continued became a lot more oppressive but at this point her desire is to show that she's this great reformist leader and this gave her a kind of perfect metaphor for that well did you have to go through a lot of archival material for your book and how easy was it to, for you to read all of those letters written in old english I did have to go through archival material very sadly because of lockdown because of um the fact that archives were closed. I was not as, as able as I would have loved to have been to actually sit and see material firsthand. So I used a lot of digitized archives. Fortunately, a lot of Russian archives are available digitally. That was very lucky for me. And actually, including um, the archives of um, the ambassadorial, uh, the ambassadorial letters uh, from Russia. So the British ambassador in Russia's letters um, to London uh, from the time are in Russian archives. That was extremely useful. And it's interesting to see how anxious he too was, of course, that a British subject was inoculating the Empress of Russia. Um, And then I was immensely fortunate to have um, the documents from the Dimsdale family. I couldn't see them in um, uh, as actual first-hand documents in real life uh, because again of the pandemic and also because uh, they are um, they're kept uh, locked away very securely to preserve them but I was able to see photographs of all of them and I did spend an awful lot of time going through them decoding the handwriting of course I I got much more um, used to it I got uh, I got quite adept at reading 18th century handwriting by the end and I, even Thomas's slightly scribbly hand, uh, I, I, I should say that the, the most interesting documents I had and probably the most kind of moving, if you like, were Thomas's own medical notes about Catherine. Um, you know, he, he traced her symptoms and her recovery. And you can feel that tension of him tracking her fever, um, her pulse rate, uh, 
what she was eating, you know, her purges. He even writes down that she had her period um, because that meant that he couldn't, she couldn't be purged during that. Um, I thought experiencing that on top of inoculated smallpox, you know, it's just another layer of something to cope with. Um, and quite a remarkable thing to find out about a female leader, I think. Um, and he also gave her a, a health questionnaire, you know, very much like we might get at the doctors today. And he asked her, you know, how much do you drink? What's your diet like? What are your general, what's your general health like? And she replied, she answered in French. So I could read all of that, you know, read uh, her saying, oh, I just have a few glasses of watered down burgundy wine. Um, my diet's generally very healthy, which it was, I think she ate quite lightly. But then she would, she said something very charming about um, something like, uh, usually I eat very, think carefully but sometimes I eat everything that is to be had and I thought gosh we've all been been there um and she also talks about the strain really of her work she was getting up at about five in the morning to work um she was an incredibly diligent incredibly hard-working person um she would get up uh, kind of light her own fire make her own coffee going for a walk sometimes and then get on with matters of state and she wrote about the headaches that she experienced she was really feeling unwell and in the end she was now getting up at six o'clock to try and you know reduce some of that strain i thought that was fascinating too again a great insight into her leadership style well this is a truly amazing story so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project <laughs> I have several ideas for a next project, um, so we'll have to see whether anyone will take me up on them. Um, but I am, I guess the themes of this are all the, the kind of ideas that I'm interested in. I really am fascinated by the period that I was writing in the 18th century. I'm really interested in 18th century science, actually, and technology and the this kind of extraordinary flowering this burst of progress and of ideas and of optimism and of you know just change really very fast change um and that I just not sure is known enough really it's an incredibly kind of modern feeling period um and yes there's just this great sense of people at the time being excited by these these this progress particularly you know watching doctors aware that they're that they're kind of crossing new ground um so i would like to pursue that perhaps i loved writing about a woman and female power i was interested in that when i worked as a political correspondent myself so i might pursue that um there's actually a story from my book that i found that i think could make a separate book in itself I'm not going to tell you what that is specifically but one of something that kind of emerges in the story i i would love to do again um yeah so i think science 18th century uh or not as also i think science narratives i'm very very interested in um I, i i think there's always stories of science and it's often the best way to try to kind of help reach a wider audience is to to kind of give that sense of narrative and of the people involved um and i'd love to kind of pursue that that theme it's a very rich theme i think so we'll see is the answer to that mm. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Well, I'm in the process of setting up a website at the moment, so um, I will that will be available pretty shortly, but uh, I probably need a 
another week or so. Um, and my book, um, The Empress and the English Doctor, comes out on the 7th of April in the UK, a little bit later in the United States. Uh, and you can find it um, through uh, independent bookstores or through all the usual different online sources. It's, it's going to be easy to get hold of, I hope. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you.